Please call the next case. Case number 23-1902 from the District of Western Missouri, Rockney Miller et al. versus Elizabeth Ziegler et al. May it please the court. My name is Cole Bradbury. I represent the challengers, Rocky Miller, John Levanchi, and Presidio Environmental LLC in this matter. Uh, I have reserved five minutes for rebuttal. When the government restricts speech, the government bears the burden to prove the constitutionality of its actions. This record does not carry the government's burden in this case. I'm here to discuss why that record fails to carry that burden and why the Missouri Ethics Commission's expert witness does not belong in that record. What is the standard of review here? Is it exa- and you might be getting into this, but exacting scrutiny or strict scrutiny? Uh, the plaintiffs, uh, challengers, stand by strict scrutiny. Um, obviously, we believe we prevail under either exacting or strict. Um, and there's a number of cases uh, that have uh, declined to answer that question. Very recently, Calzone, uh, Ted Cruz for Senate. Um, have have discussed that issue but avoided reaching it because the result was the same. Um, but this is a burden on political speech. Uh, Citizens United says burdens on political speech get strict scrutiny, uh, and the plaintiffs' uh, challengers wholeheartedly stand by strict scrutiny in this case. Does that make it different from the disclosure case? Like, an, I, as I recall, was the Calzone was a disclosure case, and we applied uh, exacting scrutiny. So I'm wondering, I guess in your view, this would be different because it's an actual burden on speech, no lobbying at all. There's no disclosure. Correct. Um, in fact, Rocky Miller tried to register to to engage it with the MEC's disclosure regime, regime that Calzone discussed, even even discussed that that regime is a heavy burden on speech, um, but there's no disclosure required by the lobbying ban. And in fact, the lobbying ban prevents disclosure because it says, thou shalt not be paid to lobby, serve, serve as a paid lobbyist. It's actually act or serve as a paid lobbyist, register as a paid lobbyist, or solicit prospective employers or clients. That's not a disclosure law. Um, the Missouri Ethics Commission uh, raised that defense in, um, in uh, the Clar case as well, um, and this court rejected that defense as well in Clar. Uh, there are a few reasons why this record does not carry MEC's burden. Uh, first and foremost, MEC's... I, I have, I, now, we're, we're, we're challenging both facial and as applied. Correct. And I don't know which you're arguing, but I want to I start with the facial. Yes, what remedy? What relief do you seek with respect to the application of the statute before Mr. Miller left the legislature? Mr. Miller didn't sue until after he left the legislature. I, I, that's, you know, let's answer the question because I don't think there is an I don't think there is an easy answer. The only conduct that the challengers are seeking to engage in while they are still employed by the state is that John Levanchi, the current legislative assistant, who's still employed by the House. Wait, if, if I'm talking facial, don't get to into as applied. Because if, if, it's, if it's facially valid as to Miller, <coughs> then it's facially valid, period. And we go to as applied. So I want to know why is it facially invalid as to Miller? It's facially invalid as to Miller. What relief did, what, what would, what relief for other legislators? We are seeking an injunction prohibiting the MEC from enforcing the lobbying ban post-employment. 
This is a challenge to the post-employment component of the lobbying ban. Oh, wait. That's not a facial attack on the statute, then. It's a facial attack on, on its application to not just the plaintiff, not just the challengers, but all, all the, it cannot be constitutionally applied to any state representative, not just a state representative um, who, in Rocky Miller's unique factual situation with Presidio. Well, but, but here, here's what's prompting my concern. Why, it seems to me the, the state, through acting through its legislature or by constitutional amendment, could prohibit any member of the elected legislature from any other paid undertaking while serving. There are. Or is your theory that any state that did that would be subject to a constitutional challenge for any legislator who said, I want to do something that I want to be paid to do something like being a weatherman that involves my protected activity of speech? The in-office component of the, the, the lobbying ban um, has not been challenged by the challengers here except as to John Levanchi, who is seeking to apply for positions while still employed by the legislature. So that would be the um, solicitor perspective employers or clients. I, I kind of wonder whether this is just a different species of an as-applied challenge. And the reason why I say that is because facial is usually you can't apply it to anyone, anytime, anywhere. Um, and it's a very broad as-applied challenge. But I wonder if by, by leaving out the component that they could ban people from doing it while in office, um, or is the argument here that the statute doesn't even apply to people in office? Um, it's, it's unclear, but that would be an as-applied challenge if it was only to some people, people who have left office or left the legislature. That would be a, a broad as-applied challenge. I, I think you could certainly view it as a broad as-applied challenge. I, I view it as a facial challenge to a component, to part of the, the, the text, yeah. of part of the, uh, the lobbying ban, the constitutional what's your, amendment. What's your best case for that concept? Um, for splitting the ban? Yeah, no, that a facial, that you can somehow go in and call it a facial attack and just split apart the statute and pick and choose. Uh, we haven't, well, that really issue hasn't been raised by MEC and we really haven't briefed it very much um, uh, at all. Well, you're asking us to, to, to make law that would, that would, as far as I know, blaze a new trail. The, what we're asking is to enjoin the post-employment uh, application of the law. If, you, if you'd rather view it as a broad, as applied, as opposed to a, a partial facial challenge, um, I, I, I certainly see Judge Strauss's point here. Um, and really, I, I do the case law on facial versus as applied, um, both in Calzone, um, Citizens United, and Cruz, all discuss that they are really different flavors of the same claim. Um, and it's just, it really speaks, I think Citizens United says that the facial versus as applied uh, challenge distinction speaks to the scope of the remedy um, and rather the analysis of the challenge. Yeah, I don't think in the end maybe it makes a lot of difference um, because you still would apply strict scrutiny, I think, to that segment of people. But we'd have to maybe change from the facial, um, the, the narrower facial or stricter facial um, uh, standard to sort of an as-applied standard when we do it. I think that's a valid point. It's certainly a reasonable way to look at it. Um, I, I guess the where, one point I do really want to make, though, is that when we get into the as-applied, there was a very brief suggestion. I don't believe it's in the, the briefs anywhere, but MEC did suggest to the district court briefly that um, 
the challenge should be viewed as applied and then only as to these three particular parties. And I do think that is not an appropriate way to view this case because if the lobbying ban cannot be constitutionally applied to a state representative and to a legislative assistant, which are the two most numerous titles in the legislature, this isn't in the record, but those two comprise over half the paid positions in the General Assembly. If it can't be applied to those two people who are at the very core of employees of the General Assembly, then it can't be applied to any employee of the General Assembly. On the staffers, the theory that the staffer, if this ban wasn't in place, could leave the legislature and earn more money as a paid lobbyist but can't do it for two years and therefore is sort of stuck in the legislature because that's what they want to do is be a paid lobbyist. Is that the theory you're sort of pushing? Yes. It kind of harkens back to the logic behind Treasury employees, although that's the Pickering line that is different, but it's the same logic that it essentially commits them to government employment. The only exception that the MEC has identified is this legislative liaison example, but the record does show that only one of those positions opened in nine years while Levanchy has been employed before one of the hearings, the injunction hearing. And there's only 15 to 25 of those positions statewide. But we're talking about 163 state representatives, approximately one legislative assistant per, plus the Senate, plus their staff. That doesn't get people out of legislative or government employment. And frankly, it commits them to sort of a two-year supervised release of working for the government in order to be able to go make more money to be paid. So tell me why this, applying whatever scrutiny you want, I guess it doesn't matter what type of scrutiny, but why is there no compelling interest here? Quid pro quo corruption or the appearance thereof? Why isn't that satisfied? It's not that the state doesn't have a quid pro quo interest. All states, all governments have an interest in reducing quid pro quo and the appearance thereof. It's that the state hasn't proven that this law furthers that interest. And that is the standard. There's a hidden kind of causation requirement in the Citizens United recitation of strict scrutiny that the challenge law must further the strict scrutiny interest and that the law must be narrowly tailored to achieve that interest. And that's the issue. What about this expert testimony that was admitted? Well, obviously the challengers don't believe that it should have been admitted, of course. But even if the testimony is admitted, and really we believe that the testimony is the best defense that they can put forward for this law, it doesn't actually show anything. First of all, we have the stipulation where MEC has admitted that it has no real world examples of this at all. And Free and Fair Election Fund, Cruz, Citizens United, McCutcheon have all held that the lack of such examples is really important, if not quite dispositive. But the reason the expert's not admissible, very briefly, a simple way to say it is her opinions are more editorial than expert. She certainly has very strongly held opinions. She was in Congress for a long time. But at the end of the day... That struck me as argument rather than testimony. Yes, struck me the same way as well, especially given the stipulation that there's no evidence in Missouri and that she didn't look at any evidence in Missouri. I want to nail this point down on the compelling government interest because I don't know what... So I understand the argument to be here that there is a compelling government interest in the abstract. Correct. In corruption or the appearance thereof, stopping it. But what I don't understand you to 
What I understand you to be arguing is, but Missouri doesn't have that problem, at least with respect to paid lobbying, because there's, the expert couldn't cite any circumstances at all about whether where a Missouri person went in and did quid pro quo corruption in exchange for a lobbying job. So is that compelling government interest, or is that furthering the government interest? I kind of view it as the former, not the latter. It, you, could, you can see it either way. Um, with and I'm sorry, I'm into my rebuttal time, but I'll, I want to I do want to answer that question. Cruz took the approach of we're not even going to get into the strict scrutiny analysis because this, the FEC, the federal government, had not proven that they were um, even attempting to address quid pro quo, uh, and, and that was the, the the proof that Missouri doesn't have this problem the way you just said it. Um, versus uh, Citizens United, Free and Fair, Clark, Calzone go through the full analysis and find that the law doesn't actually. Um, further the law under strict scrutiny, further the interest under strict scrutiny. So your argument would be this is a Cruz case, really? My argument is that it's both. <laughs> okay, it's both. Got it. Thank you. May it please the court, Jason Lewis on behalf of the state respondents in this matter. I would like to pick up where my friend on the other side had left off, and that is to discuss the uh, evidence in the record. And I think for two principal reasons, there is sufficient evidence in the record concerning what the lobbying ban here was intended to prevent. Number one, if this court does look to the most persuasive guidance from other district courts, we're thinking about the Brinkman case from the Southern District of Ohio and the Garcia case just from about a year ago from the Southern District of Florida. In that case, the district court did not discuss the fact that there may have been an absence or maybe even a plethora of examples where the bans in those cases were designed to prevent. So the most persuasive guidance from the district courts examining very similar issues did not stress that issue number two. The problem is you can't, you can't, you cannot solve under strict scrutiny a theoretical problem. You can't you can't have a treatment in, in search of a disease. Um, that just doesn't work. It works for rational basis. It may even work for intermediate scrutiny, though I'm not sure. But it certainly does not work for strict or exacting scrutiny. Judge Trust, respectfully, I'd like to push back on that a little bit. I think what uh, Your Honor is referring to is some guidance from the Cruz case, which for the reasons in our brief, we do not think is the most persuasive. But Cruz certainly does stand for the proposition. Not, not persuasive. The most recent Supreme Court case is not persuasive on us. for us. We think that the, the law in Cruz is so dissimilar from the law here that the analysis for strict scrutiny could be pertinent. So it's distinguishable. It's distinguishable. It's controlling us, that if not distinguished. Your Honor, I think that is a more artful way of saying what I had, uh, had tried to say. But, but, but I'm not even sure that's right, because it's a burden on political speech, not a disclosure. So it's not a Calzone case. And so you're still in strict scrutiny land, which, again, even I'm, I'm even getting beyond First Amendment. You can't justify something, I don't think without showing that it's an actual problem and not a theoretical problem. Judge Charles, this is what I was trying to get at to distinguish the Cruz case. Cruz certainly does have language holding that more than mere conjecture is required to meet a burden under strict scrutiny. But what Cruz does not stand for the proposition is that there is a diminishing governmental interest 
if one cannot point to a documented instance of something that would have been uh, falling within the ambit. And the district court here was getting at this issue, right? So the district court here, we think, correctly concluded uh, that Missouri voters did believe that there is an issue here. Um, and even if there's not a documented instance of quid pro quo, certainly under McCutcheon and its progeny, the appearance of quid pro quo is another uh, compelling governmental interest, whether under strict or exact exacting. Now, now wait a minute. Here's a quote from McCutcheon and Cruz. The government may not seek to limit the appearance of mere influence or of access. And, and Judge Loken, I think that is getting to the appearance, but McCutcheon also does hold that the appearance of quid pro quo corruption is sufficient. And here we do have sufficient evidence in the record. Um, number one, when uh, when the first lobbying ban was passed in 2018 before it was subsequently revised, there was a representative that did resign moments later because he, this was... Um, uh, Ken Corlew was his name, because he wanted to engage in this activity immediately. And uh, our expert did find, and there's testimony about this, did find that that is sufficient to raise uh, quid pro quo um, appearance issues. Um, our expert also did, um, contrary to what my friend on the other side had argued, did examine at least one Missouri instance that might not have been covered by the quid pro quo portion of this, perhaps the appearance, and that is with former Speaker Bob Griffin, who a number of years ago, while he was still in office, did accept bribes in connection with political favors. But it had nothing to do with lobbying, is my understanding. I mean, zero to do with lobbying. What it has to do, and this is what the, this court on Bonk was, I think, getting at in the, in the Calzone against Summers case, and that is uh, that the state can have a compelling interest when, uh, when there is the exchange of money between hands. And that is how the Anban court um, here uh, was trying to uh, distinguish what could have been permissible in, in summers, which wasn't there um, because Mr. Calzone in that case was tending to engage in more uncompensated lobbying. But there's a difference right? between, between paying somebody for legitimate services and paying somebody a bribe. And my understanding is this, this law doesn't even get to the bribe. It doesn't get to the former speaker because that speaker wasn't a paid lobbyist. So it doesn't even... My problem is we just don't even have a single example from around the country um, where this is a problem. From the quid, from the actual documented instance of quid pro quo, Your Honor, that right. is a Lobby. fair statement. But again, I'm calling back to McCutcheon where the appearance of it and the expert deposition here, the testimony preliminary injunction hearing, the expert report that is in evidence, all talks about why the appearance is there and why 62% of Missourians in 2018, over a million voters, wanted more than what was currently in law. At the time, there were bans on... But, but uh, you know, the purpose of the Bill of Rights is to restrain lawmakers and the people from invading individual liberties. So... I'm not sure there's. I'm not sure that the vote is entitled to a great deal of weight. That that doesn't help. I mean, it's, it's just as one might simply assume that there was just kind of an unreasonable and cynical and jaded view of legislative activity, and not that there's any real, objectively real, reasonable suspicion or uh, or, or sense of impropriety with respect to the quid pro quo actual activity. You see, I don't, I don't see, 
I don't see that as, a, in my mind at least, as a particularly compelling sure. argument. Sure. Judge Arnold, I have two responses to this. Uh, the first is, while I think the case law does distinguish slightly between the absence of a legislative record when you do have an initiative petition here, um, number one, Missourians did decide that there's going to be a scope of what permissible activity is. This speech is still permitted. One just can't get paid for it, right? And this is what the Garcia case and the Brinkman case and even Calzone with the lobbying disclosure regime law took pains to address. It is the receipt of compensation that is the critically distinguishing factor here. Mr. Lavanchi, Mr. Miller can still engage in protected First Amendment speech in a variety of ways. Number one, they can lobby. They just can't get paid for it. But it's right? receipt of money from a constituent. A private party, not not from a government employee. So uh, I think under the U.S. Supreme Court, um, its analysis in similar situations, and this is what Garcia and Brinkman addressed as well, when there are ample opportunities to engage in the conduct, that goes to a tailoring issue. And that is why Garcia and I think Brinkman are most distinguishable here, right? Because the Southern District of Florida in Garcia did strike the law, but it took pains to strongly suggest that if it was only limited to a narrow scope of employees, which we have here, right? Because the Florida law applied to county-level officials, applied to statewide officials, executive and legislative. Here, the Missouri ban applies only to state legislative employees um, and legislators. So we have that tailoring issue. But also, Garcia strongly suggests, I don't think there's any other way to read that case, and Brinkman enforces it too, that if the, uh, if the ban were to have been tailored only to compensate the lobbying, it would have been upheld. What about Presidio, Presidio's right? And this gets to Judge Loken's point. He said it's from a private constituent. So what's weird about this case, not weird, but what's unique about this case is you have Presidio not having the ability to, to hire a lobbyist of their choice. And you have um, the lobby, you know, the former legislator not being able to serve as a lobbyist. So you have sort of a match made in heaven among the two parties, but neither one of them can speak in that instance. Uh, Your Honor, I, I think two things. Number one, the record here is crystal clear that Presidio, number one, ultimately did hire another lobbyist. It engaged in the speech it wanted to, just perhaps not with the in, initially desired messenger to do it, but the speech was still there. Presidio still did hire a paid lobbyist. Number two, the record is also pretty clear on this point that the uh, reasons why Presidio wanted a paid lobbyist, uh, rather any lobbyist at all, would be to just educate legislators on the issue of, I believe it was environmental hearing, uh, engineering for environment, for educational purposes. The lobbying ban would not have covered this. So here we have a scope and a tailoring problem, not with respect to what the ban applies to, but with whether the covered, the activities that the challengers wanted to engage in would even have been covered by the ban at all. And the record below does not show that it would have been covered by the ban at all. If all they wanted to do was to set up a meeting and engage in just general education, that is what the testimony of the hearing below shows. Let me ask you real quick uh, um, about uh, tailoring. Why does this cover only, uh, because you brought up the education point, why does this cover only permanent lobbying but not occasional lobbying? Because that seems to be a tailoring problem as well and would go towards, would go towards I guess, under-inclusiveness? I think, Your Honor, if, if one were to start from scratch, right, if this court were to start from scratch and actually design a law from the ground up, there would be a number of ways to tailor a law in just 
in a just so way. You know, perhaps it could have been slightly more tailored to only cover, uh, you know, uh, lob 50% plus one of lobbing over the course of some period of time. You know, one can envision almost always a way to more nearly tailor a law, but then you're getting into infinitesimal regression issues, right? There's always one more way to just slightly tailor it every so often. That's not what the jurisprudence in McCutcheon and, and certainly not what the district courts in Brinkman or, or Garcia ever discussed. Um, in fact, in those cases, the laws were struck partly because they were too, um, too broad with respect to who they covered. Again, in Garcia, the laws covered not just state-level um, officials, but also county-level employees. In the Treasury employees case, um, that the appellants hang their hat on quite a lot, um, that case covered, uh, that law covered all federal government employees. Whether you're elected, appointed, it could be any government official. Uh, here, Missouri's law is sufficiently narrowly tailored only just because there could be one hypothetical way to do it just slightly more does not mean that I think parties need to keep going before the court to find the perfect fit. How right? do we know two years is right? I mean, I know there's that evidence that um, that whatever said nine states out of 50 did it from the Se- expert, Seven out of 50. Seven out of 50. How do we know that's right? Could they pass a 10-year ban? Because if appearance is all we're concerned mm-hmm. about, boy, a 10-year ban accomplishes that a heck of a lot better than a two-year ban does. Right, and, and I think, Your Honor, that's sort of the inverse of the question that you right. just asked. Are there ways to solve the problem even better? I think certainly that's what Florida tried to do with this ban on Garcia. That was a six-year ban, and the district court found that that was too long. You know, we think six years, is that's probably approaching it, and even in Florida, that law was on the upper end of the landscape of states, of the 43 other states, the 43 states, rather, um, with a similar ban. Missouri's, as our expert found in just legislative research finds, uh, Missouri's two-year ban is very consistent, uh, sort of the median, maybe slightly lower lower the median, um, but certainly approaching median for the landscape across the country. Um, And again, under Garcia, Brinkman, Calzone, uh, the question is not whether there is one small way to maybe narrowly tailor it by one fewer day, right? So maybe it's 364 days out of 365, that would be narrow, more narrowly tailored, but you know what's the threshold there? It's sort of like the logical problem of the problem of the heap. If you keep dropping kernels of uh, grains of sand onto a heap, when does it become a heap of sand versus just a collection of some numbers of grain of sand? Here, um, the tailoring issue is is just right the same thing under Brinkman and Garcia. Missouri's ban is completely consistent with what those courts found were the problems in those cases, and Missouri tried to solve it with a two-year ban applying only to statewide elected officials that applies only to paid lobbying. And there are ample additional ways for the challengers, uh, for Levanchi and Miller, to engage in that speech. They could uh, respond to questions from legislators. They can testify. Uh, they can be a legislative um, a liaison for a state agency. And of course, they can do any amount of lobbying they want. They just can't get paid for it. This targets the receipt of compensation, not the speech itself. Well, it's like a two-year covenant not to compete in contract terms. Similar, Judge, and I I think... And and those are often invalidated because they're unreasonable. They often are, but they are also upheld if they, you know, meet the right kind of tailoring problems here, I think... They don't don't infringe, they don't burden the First Amendment rights. 
Right. Just simply employment. And as, as an employer, the General Assembly is certainly within its uh, its rights to be able to have some sort of post-employment restrictions. But uh, and that's wait, sort wait, of wait, conceptually... Wait, wait, wait. Why? Hmm? Why? So the General Assembly employs individuals, um, certainly individuals like Mr. Levanchi, who's a legislative assistant, um, you know, does have the, the right to be able to uh, restrict employment so long as it is furthering the government's interest. Again, we think exacting scrutiny applies here, and there is more than sufficient evidence in the record that what the ban here is trying to further is certainly the appearance of quid pro quo corruption, but we think it also does drive to root out any potential quid pro quo Why corruption. Why exacting scrutiny? I've got I to follow up on that because this is not a disclosure law. I think that's quite clear. Right, and, and I think as Mr. Bradbury and I probably agree, uh, there have been a number of cases where the courts have been sort of reluctant to actually say this is what we're applying, but it would pass muster under either standard. We do think that this survives strict as a district court found or exacting. But to your point, why isn't it exacting? I don't think the en banc court in Calzone held that exacting scrutiny can only apply only if there's a disclosure law in place. Exacting scrutiny, you do need to look to see, um, and I, I think sort of going to first principles analysis, to look to see what are the aims of this law? What is it trying to pro- to prevent here, what is it? Is a content neutral? Is it not? And from there, apply what the right standard is. And Can we think exacting is more consistent. One more, which is, I don't think McConnell and Cruz are consistent with that. I think that they suggest that you don't get to like sort of do the means in balancing to figure out what means in balancing right. test applies. Your Honor, the state respondents would be pleased with clarification from this court on this issue, but we do not think that the en banc decision in Calzone is limited to saying that exacting only applies in disclosure, and we don't think that the other two cases from the Supreme Court, Your Honor mentioned, um, also prevent, uh, you know, sort of digging a little bit into, you know, what is this trying to prevent? Is this content-based or not content-based? Um, I think there is some suggestion you can put the cart before the horse a little bit, but we do think exacting can apply, even if it doesn't. The district court should be affirmed under strict scrutiny. Thank you, Your Honors. May it please the court. I have a lot to cover and not a lot of time. Um, Very briefly, um, I want to point out as to to Judge Loken's covenant not to compete uh, comment. Um, The state legislature did not choose this as a restriction on its employees. The, The voters did. So this is not the legislature choosing to impose this as a condition on their employees as an, acting as an employer. Um, second, I want to push back hard on the argument well, that... It, it, but it's in the Constitution. The, the voters did put it in the state Constitution. Well, okay, so it's even more powerful. It, it, uh, it is, but it's, it, it's still the, the Supremacy Clause still says it cannot override the First Amendment. Um, second, I want to push back very hard on the idea that it's undisputed um, that Presidio... With the, the activity that Presidio wanted to hire Miller for is allowed under the lobbying ban. Um, the appendix, page 230, paragraph 26, Presidio, it's, uh, Presidio approached Miller about lobbying at 235, paragraph 47. Presidio did not hire Miller because of his inability to register as a lobbyist. Those were admitted by the MEC. Those are facts not in dispute. This is while still serving, right? No, this is, all of this occurred post, post-service. There was contact before, while he was still serving. They knew each other. Uh, while he was serving, but the it, the undisputed record is that none of these conversations about lobbying occurred until well after he left. 
until well after Miller left service. Um, I also want to discuss the um, question about the, the burden on the, the payor payee analysis as the district court discussed it that Judge Loken asked and Judge Strauss followed up on. Um, in uh, There are a lot of cases that have the payor or the payee. Um, Cruz has the lender and the debtor um, a challenge. McCutcheon was the donor and the donee. Um, Buckley versus American Constitutional Law Office, uh, Foundation also had both sides of the transaction. Um, but Treasury Employees was only about the payees challenging. There was no payor challenging that restriction. Uh, in Meyer versus Grant, it was the payors only challenging, the people who wanted to pay the initial uh, signature gatherers. Um, and 303 Creative held last year by the Supreme Court um, that a speechwriter doesn't lose his First Amendment right to choose for whom he works simply because he is paid. Um, last, I want to put in a word for John Levanchi. Mr. Levanchi is still employed by the House. He couldn't be here today because he has to work. They're in session today. Um, the MEC's expert, Meredith McGee, could not op actually opine that some lower-level legislative employees should not be covered by the lobbying ban. Their own expert said the law is too broad, at least as it applies to low-level employees. She could not say whether or not that, law, that ban should apply to Mr. Levanchi because she did not know enough about him. And I see my time is up. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. The case has been uh, very well briefed and argued, and the argument's been helpful, and we'll take it under advisement.